Well, hasn't it been wonderful to be able to, to sing uh, unrestrained today, and I trust that that will continue in your hearts and, uh, and in the weeks ahead as we continue to worship the Lord every Sunday. But please keep your Bibles open now in Revelation chapter 14. Uh, Revelation chapter 14 is the passage that we've looked at over the last uh, two weeks, and um, we're going to be finishing, finishing that today. Now, as we come to try and understand uh, this passage of Scripture in Revelation 14 today, I want us to actually first turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61. So please turn back in your Bibles to the prophecy of Isaiah in the Old Testament, and I want to read together a portion uh, of Scripture that Jesus read on the Sabbath morning when he went into the synagogue at the very beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4. So in Isaiah chapter 61, we find the portion that Jesus turned to when he was given the scroll, uh, and he read Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, if you perhaps this afternoon go and read Luke chapter 4 and you compare what Jesus read to these verses in Isaiah chapter 61, what you will notice is that Jesus stopped halfway through verse 2. As Jesus commenced his earthly ministry, his very first public teaching was that Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1 and 2a was fulfilled in his first coming. Jesus stood up at the end of the first half of verse 2 and said, Today, these verses, this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. Jesus' first coming was in the spirit of the Lord God to proclaim the gospel to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to those who were captives, release from the prison to those who were bound. In summary, the first coming of Jesus was to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so all that the first coming of Jesus accomplished, we saw last week most vividly in Revelation chapter 14, verse 1 to 5. As the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion with his people surrounded him and they worshipped him with the song of the redeemed. Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. But you will notice that Isaiah's uh, prophecy has a second part to verse 2. As Isaiah, from his perspective, looked into the future and anticipated the coming of the Messiah, he saw that the Messiah would come to not only proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but as the last line says, and also the day of the vengeance of our God. And really, this is what the rest of Revelation 14 is all about. The rest of Revelation 14 is a terrible description of the day of the Lord's vengeance. The events that will take place with his second coming the day of the Lord's wrath and judgment against all that is wicked on the earth. Now, Revelation 14 is a terrifying chapter on the doctrine of hell, 
and the eternal punishment of the wicked. And whenever we as Christians start talking about hell these days, we can already hear and and see in our minds the pro-self, or should I say the pro-self-righteous lobbyists waving their placards at us, shouting, what kind of a cruel and sadistic God do you Christians worship who would send good people and their puppies to hell? Well, this kind of response is nothing new. And so when Peter wrote about the day of the Lord in 2 Peter chapter 3, he warned us that in the last days, scoffers will come and they will mock us as they happily continue following their sinful desires. Some will scoff, some will mock because they will argue, well, where is this, the second coming of Christ that you Christians talk about? He hasn't come for 2,000 years. He's never going to come. God is a liar. And others will scoff and they'll mock in order to try and escape in their own mind and thinking the consequences of their own eternal judgment. But Peter's response to to both groups of, of mockers is to appeal to the heart of God in calling people to repentance. In 2 Peter 3 verse 8, Peter says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some of you would count slowness. He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. The day of the Lord's judgment is coming. God's wrath burns with holy fire. Hell is real. Hell is terrifying and it is eternal. But before This day comes to consume all of the enemies of God. We have Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 to 20, where John sees a vision, and his vision starts with three angels and three calls to repent. So let's start there this morning. Turn back, if you're not back there already, to Revelation 14, verse 6 to 11. So so John's vision shifts now from this glorious scene that we considered last week in verses 1 to 5 in heaven to now see these three angels appearing in the skies above the earth. So somewhere between earth and heaven, he sees an angel flying directly overhead, visible for everyone to see, and this angel has an eternal gospel to proclaim. And we are told that he proclaims it to all the people who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Remember in the years gone by, I don't know if they still do it, I haven't seen it for a long time, we used to watch those airplanes fly over the city, dragging a a massive banner behind them to kind of advertise some product or some event. Well, in a sense, this is what John sees, this this angel flying across the, the skies of the world, proclaiming a gospel message to all the peoples of the world. And verse 7 tells us what he proclaimed. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. 
Now, this is the first and the only time in the book of Revelation that the word gospel is mentioned. But it, it follows after 75 other verses in the rest of the New Testament, which help us to clearly understand that the gospel is shorthand for the good news of salvation that is found only in the Lamb who was slain, but who is now standing on Mount Zion. That's the gospel. Now, to make this connection more explicit, this wasn't just general good news that this angel was proclaiming, but the eternal gospel. He says that the angel's message was an eternal gospel. I think this ties us back to chapter 13, verse 9, where we looked at a few weeks ago that those whose names had been written in the Lamb's book of life were written there from before the foundations of the world. Paul also speaks about this eternal dimension to the gospel in Ephesians 1, where he says that we have been chosen by God before the foundations of the world. That's in eternity past. We are saved by God in the fullness of time, but we are saved for an inheritance which is sealed by the Holy Spirit until we acquire it in glory. That's eternity future. And so the New Testament then goes to, to great lengths in more than 40 verses to speak of the gospel in terms of eternal life. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so this angel flies across the skies proclaiming the gospel of salvation to all people, calling all people in verse 7 to fear God, to give him glory as creator of all things, as the judge of all the world, and calling all mankind to worship him. Paul's letter to the Romans Romans chapter 1, verse 18 onwards, gives us a clear understanding of what ultimately divides all mankind into two groups on the day of judgment. And Paul tells us that the wrath of God is coming against those who suppress the truth about God. Specifically, Paul says, the truth about God that he is the creator of all things, the creator of the whole world. And instead of worshiping him as creator, they instead worship the things that he has made. And so this first angel then is not calling on people to learn something new. Simply he is calling here to respond with sincere hearts to what every single human being already knows. Even the atheist who tells you that everything around us comes from 14 billion years of sludge evolving into this, the Bible says he knows in his heart of hearts that God made it all. And we are simply being called here to fear God as creator and to worship him, to repent of our sins and trust in him in saving faith. That's the gospel. Then in verse 8, John sees a second angel following this first angel with an announcement against Babylon. And this too is, is a warning. And the announcement is, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. 
Now, this is a reference uh, to Babylon, and it comes from both an Old Testament and a New Testament context. Firstly, in the Old Testament, we read in Jeremiah chapter 51 of God's destruction of Babylon. And listen to what God says about Babylon in Jeremiah 51, 7. Babylon was a, a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. And so by the end of the Old Testament, Babylon has become synonymous uh, for both the, the power of the pagan nations, uh, as we particularly see in, in the book of Daniel, uh, but also the sinful seduction of the pleasures and the wealth of this world, most often associated with sexual immorality and drunkenness. So this symbolic understanding of Babylon was then transferred into the New Testament, and Peter had this in mind when he closes his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, and he sends greetings to the Christians whom he was writing to from their fellow church in Rome. And this is what he says, she, speaking of the church who is in Babylon, likewise chosen sends you greetings. Babylon was long gone when Peter wrote those words, but Rome had now become the new Babylon. And so as John is, is writing to these seven Christian churches scattered across the, the Roman Empire, all of them we've seen previously were facing persecution, opposition, they had temptation from false teaching, they were being led astray by the sexually immoral teachings of Jezebel. What is what does John do here? He encourages them with a call to repent, reminding them that Babylon of old, Rome of their present, or the materialistic West or the communist East of our present, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. We're going to see the final judgment and destruction of Babylon in some detail in chapter 17 to 19. But for now, the second angel is calling to all those who've been seduced by the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And to remind us that Babylon's destruction is guaranteed. As I mentioned last time, the primary reference here to sexual immorality of Babylon is spiritual. The whole of this fourth vision from chapter 12 to chapter 14 is, is the battle for worship. It's the worship of God versus the worship of the dragon. But we're going to see in future weeks that one of Satan's primary weapons to destroy Christians, to, to keep the, the church ineffective in this world, is to keep us worshiping at his feet through the power and the slavery of sexual immorality. The Greek word here is porneia, from which we get the word for the multi-billion dollar industry of pornography and all that goes with it. Satan uses porneia Sexual immorality like an intoxicating drink, like a drug which draws people in with the promise of pleasure, but in the end it destroys the soul. The second angel's voice is calling to those in the grip of Babylon's intoxicating seduction. Babylon is fallen. 
And so too will you if you keep on drinking her wine. John then sees a third angel who followed the first two across the skies. And this one issues a third call for repentance with the most clear and a graphic description of warning for those who worship the beast. Let me just read these verses again slowly from verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, remember we saw that last time, that's just the world we live in. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now there's a very clever play on words in the Greek here, which is not so clear in our English Bibles between verse 8 and verse 10. Maybe you want to circle them and link them in your Bible. Verse 8 warns those who drink the wine of the passion of Babylon's sexual immorality. And verse 10 says that those who worship the beast will now drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. The word for passion in verse 8 and the word for wrath in verse 10 is exactly the same word in the Greek. It's the language of a concoction which has been brought to the boil and then which when drunk either drives the person mad or it ends up killing them. See, in John's day, wine was mostly drunk as a heavily diluted mixture of, of wine with water, very low alcohol content. But that is not the wine which God will make these worshippers of the beast drink. No, we are told the wine of God's fury is poured full strength, undiluted, into the cup of his wrath for all these beast worshippers to drink. And the rest of the description, it's meant to be terrifying. It's, it's terrifying to, to see and understand what Hebrews 10.31 talks about, to fall into the hands of the living God. Those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life are those who we previously saw were marked by the beast. And the angel announces that they will be tormented with fire and sulfur forever and ever. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. And they have no rest from their suffering day or night forever and ever. So here we have three calls to repentance. Each one echoes the heart of God in Ezekiel, where God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. These portions on hell are not some sadistic God delighting in the destruction of evil. These are given as warnings from a God who loves you and is saying, why do you want to end up there? Repent now and come to me for salvation. 
And so we have this call to repentance to those who are spiritually complacent on the earth. Don't we all need that warning today? Those who carry on as in the days of Noah, eating and drinking, or as in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, buying, selling, planting, building, when suddenly the flood came and washed them away, when suddenly fire and sulfur rained down from heaven, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man returns. Secondly, we have a call to repentance to those who've been seduced by the great prostitute Babylon. Us living here in Johannesburg, with all her intoxications of sexual immorality and pleasures, those who are caught up in the worship of her false ideologies and promises of pleasure. And then thirdly, those who've been called to repent to those who worship the beast, who have his mark on their, on their lives, prosperity, power, comfort, influence, those whose lives worship the beast in all his various shapes and forms. All the peoples on the earth are called to repent of their sinful ways, to fear God, to give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. Remember Psalm 2 from last week. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in Him. We must move on uh, in John's vision to see in the second place then, after the three angels and their calls to repent, we have two calls to harvest the earth in verses 14 to 20. There's a prophetic foreshadowing of these verses found in the prophet Joel. In Joel 3 verse 13, we read, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. What an amazing description Joel gives us for this final day of the Lord. He calls it the day of decision. God's decision, the one decision that will determine our eternal destiny. And here in, in this vision, John sees two distinct events which occur on that one day of decision. There are two harvests of souls. One harvest to eternal life, one harvest to eternal destruction. And both events occur when Jesus appears seated on a white cloud with a golden crown on his head in verse 14 and a sharp sickle in his hand. If you've got your diagram uh, of, of Revelation, that one I gave you at the beginning, you'll see with all the yellow blocks at the end of each of the cycles of visions, there is a, re a reference to the singular return of Jesus Christ to bring about the final day of the Lord's judgment. Jesus is not coming back two more times or three more times with various options depending on your ethnicity and second chances. No, he's coming once, one more time on the day of decision. And the language John uses here is almost identical to Daniel 7 
where Daniel speaks of one like a son of man coming with the clouds, presented before the ancient of days, and he's given power and dominion over all the peoples of the earth. And it's Jesus himself who takes that Daniel reference to a son of man, and Jesus claims that title for himself over 80 times in the Gospels as the son of man who is here coming on the clouds. Matthew 26, verse 64, Jesus said, I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And what will happen when Jesus appears on the clouds? Will there be a a secret rapture? Suddenly Christians just disappear? Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. John's vision sees Jesus coming on the clouds This is the final day of of decision and it's described for us in this symbolic imagery of two harvests, a wheat harvest unto eternal life and a harvest of grapes unto eternal destruction. And so in verse 15, we, we read that an angel comes out of the temple. Again, let me remind you, this is Revelation. There is no physical temple in heaven. This is simple, symbolic language for the presence of God. So this angel comes from the the presence of God and tells Jesus that it's time for him to put in his sickle and to harvest the wheat of the earth for the hour God has determined has come. Remember that Jesus said in Matthew 24, no one knows the day or the hour. No one, not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son, only the Father knows the, the hour of his return. And so now God the Father has determined that the hour has come and he he sends an angel to tell his son on the clouds, the hour has come, the harvest is fully ripe. Now the word ripe in verse 15 is a word which specifically refers to the wheat crop having dried to the point that it it is golden and brown and it's ready to be harvested. And so we see that Jesus, in verse 16, swings his sickle across the earth, and the righteous wheat are are harvested, are reaped. Anyone who wants to insist that we must take Revelation literally, I hope you can see that this cannot be. This is a, a beautiful image of a farmer swinging his sickle to harvest the wheat crop that he is so painstakingly and, and lovingly nurtured and cared for that it might be brought into his barns. What a wonderful picture of, of the day of glory for Christ's church as Jesus comes to, to harvest the souls for which he died. And then John sees another angel coming out of the presence of God in verse 17. This angel also has a sharp sickle. And then a third angel comes out from the altar. And we are told that this angel has authority over the fire. Now hopefully you'll recall back from chapter 8, verse 1 to 5, that this is the angel who took that large censer, filled it with fire and coals from the altar, and threw it down on the earth in God's judgment on the wicked. 
You can see that in the little yellow block at the end of the second vision. Well, now this angel calls out to the second angel with a sharp sickle, and he says in verse 18, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. Now, there's that word ripe again, but this time it's a different Greek word. It's a word not like verse 15, which refers to the wheat harvest being ripe and ready. This is a verse that speaks about grapes being full of juice and ready to be processed. And so what follows then is a, is a most terrible picture of the final end of the wicked. As the angel, verse 19, swung his sickle across the earth, gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for a 1,600 stadia. With all the symbols and the numbers in Revelation, this is just a very graphic description of the universal destruction of the wicked. 1,600 stadia is about 300 kilometers. The human eye can typically only see about five kilometers before the, the curvature of the earth gets in the way. So, so this idea of 300 kilometers or a, a radius of 150 kilometers, it's, it's simply a picture of complete global destruction of the wicked. What we have in Revelation 14, as we've seen in, in all of our, our yellow blocks at the end of each cycle of vision, is the final day of the Lord's judgment. There's only one return of Jesus, and on that day, there will be one judgment with two harvests, the righteous wheat, the sheep of God's flock to eternal life, and the unrighteous grapes, the wicked goats, will be harvested to eternal destruction. And so as we bring our study to, in chapter 14 to a close, we, we've seen two wonderful descriptions of God's people in chapter 14, what awaits us on the day of the Lord. We've seen Jesus coming on the clouds, gathering his saints from the earth, worshiping him on Mount Zion as we sing the song, the, the song of the redeemed. And then we've had two terrifying descriptions of the fate of the wicked, of those who worship the beast those who've drunk the wine of the passions of Babylon. They are not only trodden on in the winepress of God's wrath, what a graphic image of that judgment day, but then they are tormented in the fires of hell forever. Now what was this vision meant to accomplish in the hearts of those first hearers? Those seven churches back in chapter two and three scattered across Asia Minor some suffering persecution, some suffering martyrdom. Others were being led astray by temptation and false teaching. Some had been lured away by the world into lukewarmness. What was chapter 14 meant to teach them? Well, I would argue that the lesson that Jesus wanted them to learn in this chapter is exactly the same lesson he wants us to learn today, which is namely one call to endure. We see that in, in verse 12 and 13, sandwiched in the very middle of these visions of eternal glory for God's people and eternal destruction for God's enemies. In the middle are these two verses of great encouragement for the church of Jesus to endure. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. 
And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Remember back in chapter 10, verse 4, when the seven thunders sounded, John was about to write, and he was told, no, no, John, do not write that down. It was sealed up, that vision. But here we have the exact opposite. Although John is busy writing everything that he sees, here John hears a voice from heaven saying, John, write this down. Don't miss this, John. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yeah, I'm sure the prosperity teachers of John's day were also filling their Jerusalem bookshops with ancient versions of your best life now nonsense. Scrolls telling people that God wants you to be happy and healthy and rich and successful here on earth. But as the Christians, we're facing the opposite persecution, martyrdom. John himself was, was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. Believers were being put to death by that first beast from the sea. They were being led astray and, and held in, in poverty by the, the beast from the, the earth. They wondered, is Jesus ever coming back? Perhaps they doubted if it was all worthwhile to persevere in this newfound faith. Jesus comes with this wonderful call to endurance. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. In other words, it's not even what is the worst that the devil can do to you, is kill you. No, no. Write down, John, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. You've gained something. You haven't lost something. And if the command from God to, to write this down was not enough, I just love how the Holy Spirit jumps in here with his own encouragement. It's like a conversation in heaven. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, blessed indeed, says the Holy Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. What a contrast to those who will be cast into the eternal fires of hell when they die, who did not respond to the, the great call of God to give him glory and to fear him and to worship him, who never repented. We are told their torment never ends. They have no rest day or night forever and ever. But for every person who dies in the Lord, whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life, they are blessed indeed, for they will find eternal rest in the presence of God forever. Now, some people have tried to teach from verse 13 that our entrance into heaven is by works. We are saved by our deeds, but that could not be further from the truth. It does not say their deeds precede them. In other words, when we die, we, we come and we present all our good works to God, and then God will decide if we make it into heaven or not. No, it says their deeds follow them. They're already in heaven. Those who die in the Lord, those who die in faith in Jesus Christ, who are united to Christ, are blessed. Blessed indeed because our acceptance before God is all because of the Lamb who was slain and who now reigns. When we get to heaven, the Bible teaches our deeds will follow us. Our labors will follow us. Verse 12 describes these saints as those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is a description of believers. We've repented. We've believed. 
we've persevered, we've struggled, we've plodded along faithfully, we've fought the good fight, we've finished the race, and now we receive the crown of righteousness which Jesus awards to all his servants on that day. So let me close with a poem today by the great British cricket player C.T. Studd who gave up playing international cricket uh, to become a gospel missionary to China. But let's close with this um, in the light of the passage that we've just considered. Only One Life by C.T. Studd. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way. Sorry, let me just go back one slide. Okay, you ready, Dion? Are you gonna take over? Thanks. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life, it'll soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, it'll soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life, it'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep, faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life, it'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Yes, only one. Now let me say, Thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say it was worth it all. Only one life, it'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I mean, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, as the majority here who are the redeemed of the Lord, and we consider these warnings in your word and the terrors of hell which await those who are outside of Christ. Oh, how our love for you just grows in appreciation and praise for the fact that you have redeemed us, that you've saved us from ourself, from the deception of the evil one, and from this eternity in hell. And you've redeemed us for yourself to be your prized possession to spend eternity in your presence. And Lord, every one of us here today knows those whom we love 
who do not yet know you. Some may even be sitting here today with cold and hard hearts to these three warnings of the angels and to the realities of what awaits them. And Lord, sometimes we get frustrated. We cannot understand how they cannot see these truths. And then we remember that for many years in our lives, we were exactly where they were until you lifted the veil of darkness and caused us to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to pray today, Lord, that every single person hearing this message would not leave here under the power and the deception of the dragon, that they would not leave here so intoxicated by the wine of the passions of the Babylon of this world, that they will be heading away from your call to repent with hearts that are hardened against you. Lord, if any of them do leave here today in that state, we pray your grace to be upon them, that you would bring them to their knees, that you would make them miserable in their sin now on earth so as to save them, so that they do not have to spend eternity in misery. Lord, we plead with you to do the work today that only you can do and that you have promised your word will accomplish. We promise to give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus' name.